Mark chapter 1, um, 1 to 13, and it's in page 812 of the church Bible. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'll baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Amen. Thanks. Good morning again. We are starting this series on Mark, as Ben mentioned, uh, and it's a very powerful opening that Mark gives us. I'm going to pray now so we can, uh, that God might help us to understand what's going on in these few verses. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for being with us as you promised. We thank you for speaking us through your spirit and through your word as you promised. And Lord, we just thank you for bringing us here that we can enjoy this time together through worship, through fellowship. But now, Lord, through your word, through your spirit, Lord, that you'll speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Big introductions are important because you only often get, usually, one chance for to give a first impression. So you want to introduce somebody well. You don't want to muck that up. In fact, there's sometimes a lot of pressure on mucking things up when you're introducing people. See, I remember the first funeral I ever took. Uh, it was while I was still a student. My minister said to me at the time, he says, oh, there's this lady, uh, I don't know her, she's not a part of the church. We're expecting maybe 15 or 20 people here at the service. Um, it's a good one just to get in practice, your first funeral. Her name, and I remember it clearly, it was Margaret Hatcher. And I thought to myself, this is interesting, that sounds like Margaret Thatcher, the British politician that was still alive and well at that time. Uh, so I think to myself, now I've got to be careful then, don't say Margaret Thatcher. Don't say Margaret Thatcher. I rock up there on the day, not 20 people, but over 150 people. The church is full, including my hero, Wayne Bennett. He's sitting in the congregation saying, don't say Margaret Thatcher, don't say... Welcome to the funeral of Mrs. Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Hatcher. I say, how could you get it wrong? I'm telling myself, don't say... I got it wrong. In fact, after the service, I said to the minister, I said, oh, look, did you hear my little fumble? But I think I recovered. I think it was okay. He just looked at me and says, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's not good. But here we see the start of Mark. He's got a chance to introduce Jesus to the world in writing. 
See, in fact, uh, most scholars believe Mark was the very first gospel that was written, that the account of Jesus. So it's the first time in writing this is going to be circulated. There's a lot of pressure on this is the big introduction of Jesus, the Son of God, Lord and Saviour. I don't know about you, but reading it now, it's kind of, it misses out a lot of the nice stories of baby Jesus in the manger, the wise men, the shepherds, the angels singing. It kind of skips all that sort of stuff and it just goes straight into this is Jesus. Here's a few Old Testament verses. Here's uh, a story about John. It's mostly about John the Baptist, it would seem. But then uh, Jesus goes off into the wilderness. It's a bit of an anticlimax. So reading it today, you kind of think, what sort of introduction is this? This is not the kind of person I want to follow because it doesn't really say much that inspires me about him. But for Mark, Mark's writing this in a particular period of time. He's actually writing it to the people of Rome. So a lot of the Bible that we have that uh, is written to the people is in Jerusalem for the Jews. They're religious. They're God's people, the Jews. This is very different. He's writing to people in Rome where Jews... Uh, were the heart, Jerusalem was the heart of, of Judaism. Rome is the part of the empire. It's the heart of the empire at that time. So when you're thinking around 65 AD, the time he's writing, you've got to start thinking emperors, grandeur, like the big colosseums, law and order, the peace that they're trying to go, prosperity that they're going for, real optimism for the future. In fact, when we're thinking first century Rome instead of first century Jerusalem, we actually have a lot in common with first century Rome. When we look around today, what do we want? Peace and prosperity, optimism for the future. We think we're the most advanced community around. You know, we think we're going places. In fact, as they look to the emperor to, to steer them in that direction for the glory of Rome, for the glory of the kingdom, we kind of look for our own leaders, for the glory of our nation, for the glory of us. We want peace and prosperity. We want the good things in life too. But as Mark's saying, look, I've actually got something better than the emperor. I've got, got to tell you about something that's better than the empire. It's actually talking to us as well. That all the dreams we might have here on earth, he's saying, look, I've got something better than what you're looking around at. I've got something, a better future, but it's around this guy called Jesus. Now, this is a very dangerous message, very dangerous for first century Rome. It's actually... It's a message that might have him killed and possibly does have him killed. But it's also a dangerous message for us. See, if you take Jesus as Lord and Saviour, even today, 2,000 years later, it's also a message that's going to go against the tide of society. That we uh, have trouble in the workplace convincing people that, that we're legitimate believing in something that is historically true and accurate. That universities are teaching, no, no, it's a fairy tale, it's a fairy tale, it's a philosophy. But to go, no... This is actually something that's true. And I believe in, even believe in enough to put my life on it, like Mark does, where he puts his life uh, on, on proclaiming Jesus, just putting in writing, he's putting himself out there. I'm trying the clicker for the first time this morning and it's not being helpful sorry i probably clicked it so many times i've blown up the computer or something i'll keep going if this is important here we go we might have something happening now it's mark's introduction the roman empire that that he's writing into we need to realize the context of where he's going but similar to us 
But when he goes into his introduction, he says, this is so important, so important that I'm willing to bet my life on it in proclaiming Jesus. And it's so important you need to know it too. So he says, let me introduce you to this guy, Jesus. The very first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, often when we read this, we go, this is a good introduction, like intro sentence. This is what his whole story is going to be about. But what he's actually doing here is much, much more controversial than that. Right from the opening line, this is causing trouble. It's causing a stir because he's taken a claim that the Roman emperors used to use for themselves. There was this uh, one of the emperors, Augustus. It was his claim to be the son of God. And now Mark's coming up going, no, no, no. Actually, it's Jesus is truly the son of God. To understand the real controversy going on here, we need to do a bit of history, step back, even before Mark's writing 65-ish AD, uh, to go back a little bit further, to go back a little bit further, quick history lesson. We have Julius Caesar. Uh, so he was a bit before Jesus, 100 BC, 44 BC. By the time he died, as in he was killed, because all the emperors get killed, in 44 BC, he'd set up the Roman, it wasn't an empire then, but a republic, so conquered lots of areas, lots of nations, set up lots of leaders, order. Julius Caesar is often referred to as the father of Rome. But it's not till after he died, and when he died, he put in, in his will that uh, another guy, Augustus, that he would take, it's his son, uh, adopted son, it's actually his nephew, but he says, it's my stepson, he will take over the throne. So Augustus, uh, he reigned up until 14 AD. Now we're starting to get the time around Jesus was alive. Jesus was growing up when Augustus was reigning as emperor. And I say emperor here because Augustus, he cleaned out all the other leaders, cleaned them out as in had all the other leaders murdered. Uh, he said, now we're not just a republic, we're an empire. And by the way, I'm your new emperor. I'm the one. So, and he actually did a good job of being an emperor as far as expanding the borders, bringing law and order in, and the whole peace and prosperity thing uh, for Rome. At one stage, under Augustus, uh, Rome is said to have over 7 million people living in the Roman Empire. Sorry, 70 million people living in the Roman Empire. For that day and age, it was massive under his rule. It was big. But this is in the time of Jesus. One thing Augustus did was he said, look, uh, Julius Caesar, he was, he was our father of Rome. Actually, I'm going to declare that he is God, that he was divine. It's true. He's dead now. Uh, with, when he died, they said they saw some uh, flashes of lights in the sky. That was, must have been him going up into heaven. So I declare him as God, and we're going to worship him, set up a temple for him, uh, for Julius Caesar. But what that also means for Augustus being his son, it means Augustus, still alive, is now the son of God. And this is what's proclaimed. Augustus now, the son of God. In fact, uh, while he's alive, they set up, they celebrate because he's kind of their saviour, and they use that language, saviour of him, because he's advancing the kingdom of Rome. They uh, set up his birthday. They celebrate his birthday every year in the Roman Empire, a little bit like we celebrate Christmas. We want to celebrate the birth of our Saviour in Jesus. Back then, we're going to celebrate the birth of Augustus. And what was mentioned, they've got lots of archaeological... Good thing about Rome, they wrote everything down. But as they celebrate, they give the reason why they celebrate... Um, sorry. He's got his own temple. That's what I was going to say. 
The reason why they celebrate uh, him is because it says the beginning of the good news for the world. This is who he is. He is the beginning of the good news for the world. We need to celebrate this every day. Uh, they put up. And this is what they did. They set up their temples. They worshipped him because this is the beginning of a new era for Rome. The empire is going to go ahead. We're going to get our dreams fulfilled. Peace and prosperity. Pax Romana is the, the saying that, that he introduced about this is the glory of Rome. It's all about the empire is what he said. Now you can imagine when somebody comes along and says, takes the wording of that, crosses out the good news for the world, but says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Can you imagine how offensive that is of the time? It's like if we said the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and somebody crossed it out and put Gandhi in there, Donald Trump in there, you know, put in any name in there, we'd go, that's at least offensive, right? How can they claim that they're the Son of God? But this is what Mark's doing. Augustus, you got the wrong man worshipping Augustus. It's Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah means king, same word as king. He is the king. He is the son of God. Now, this is stirring up a lot of trouble. Now, if you're going to say things like that, you've got to be confident in what you're saying. In fact, so confident that you've got to be willing to put your life on the line for it. And in that time, he did. 65, around 65 AD is when Mark is writing. Who's emperor at that time? This guy called Nero. Nero's emperor. He hated any idea of any other kings. He hated Christians so much. The story is about him holding garden parties. And at the garden parties, he would capture Christians just for the novelty of it, dip them in oil, stick them on a pole, and light them up to light up his garden party. They were his torches. The entertainment was that he did it alive, so they'd hear them screaming as well. That's the sort of guy he is. Nero's a bad guy, but Mark's writing at this time. Are you going to put something in writing with your name on it that's going to get back to the emperor, Nero, are you prepared to die for this? Because you've got to be convinced. You've got to know it's true that if you're going to be prepared to die for something like that, you've got to be without a doubt. And what Mark is saying, look, I'm willing to write this down because I believe it's true. I know it's true. I hung out with Jesus. Mark was one of Jesus' disciples. But what he's saying is, I know it's true. You need to know it's true too. In fact, if you're in Rome, you need to know it's true without a doubt because this is going to turn your life upside down. might even put your life on the line. Are you willing to put your life on it? He says, let me explain. Let me explain what's going on. How you can be, follow Jesus without a doubt. So in that time, what they did, if they were going to declare uh, an emperor as divine, as God, they said there's three criteria. There's the prophecies that, uh, you know, if you're somebody from God, surely people are going to talk about you, have dreams about you. So Julius Caesar, somebody dreamt about him and told him in a prophecy, hey, somebody's going to kill you. And guess what? He was killed. Doesn't sound that radical, a statement, knowing the climate of the day. But he was killed. So there was a prophecy about Julius Caesar, and it came through. Prophecies, they were so sensitive about prophecies. You might know the story when Jesus was born in other Gospels. Jesus was born, the wise men come looking for him. And who do they see? They see Herod. So look, we're looking around Bethlehem because there's this prophecy about the new king being born there. What did Herod do in response? 
killed all the babies, all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Because there was a prophecy, and that's only prophecies about the divine. So prophecies are important. There's also signs and this sort of omen, not necessarily miracles, but just peculiar things that happen around people who are divine or special. So for Augustus, it's recorded that one day when he was a boy, he went out to a swamp and there's all these frogs croaking in the swamp and he got sick of it. So he commanded the frogs to shut up, basically. And guess what? The frogs shut up. I don't know whether you've ever done that before. You go out to the bush and frogs or crickets, you just make a big noise and they're all quiet. That disappoints me because nobody ever called me king or emperor or divine when I do it, but he does it. And all of a sudden, it's a sign. It's divine. But also they're declared divine by the following emperor. So you might declare yourself divine. So for Augustus, he said to everybody, look, I'm the son of God. They treat him that way, but it wasn't until he dies, he was murdered again like the rest of them, he, he dies, but the next emperor says, oh, by the way, yes, we saw his spirit. One person, one person saw his spirit go up into heaven after he died, so he must be divine, it's confirmed. So they have this criteria, is there prophecies about the person, is there signs or omens, are they declared by the emperor, the following emperor that's still alive, to be true? That's their criteria. Mark uses this. So after using that very first line of saying, hey, Jesus is truly the Son of God, he kind of argues on their terms. So this is where he goes. Verse 2, you want prophecies. Well, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, first thing, we go, oh, where, do, where do we find this on Isaiah? It's actually in Malachi, Malachi 3, another prophet. Often for those guys, when they want to quickly refer to prophets, Isaiah is kind of a shorthand, because Isaiah, most of the prophecies in Isaiah, so just say Isaiah the prophet. Don't be confused by that. But what he's saying is there's prophecies. I'll send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. It's not exactly about Jesus, not exactly about the king that's coming, but it's about the sign who's going to show you who the king is. He goes on, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is from Isaiah chapter 40, where it talks about uh, the saviour coming, the king coming to restore the kingdom. But he's saying it's not necessarily about Jesus, but the sign for Jesus, the sign for the great one is going to be so great. They're even talking about him. Malachi, over 400 years before Jesus was born, he writes that. Isaiah 40, 680 years before Jesus was born. They're saying, look, there's going to be a sign coming. The sign's going to be so great, pointing to the greater one. So great. How does that compare to the Roman emperors? Because they only got prophecies once they got into those positions. Once they become emperors, they started having dreams and started prophesying about him while they're still alive. But what Mark is saying... These guys are pointing to Jesus, this Son of God, hundreds of years beforehand. That's a prophecy. What about the sign? What about this uh, strange things that happen around the people? Well, he goes on to tell this story about John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, like, it's just a strange story, isn't it? Here's this, let me tell you about this man. He's wandering around the wilderness. Some Bibles say desert, but we get the idea. It's away from all the crowds. It's... It's in nowhere's land. And all these people are turning up to see him. Uh, to say all... Sorry, I just need to go to my spot. 
So the whole Judean countryside and all the people in Jerusalem went out to him. Isn't that a bit weird that there's this random guy out in the desert teaching about God and how to get right with God, how you need to confess your sins, you need to repent, you need to be baptised, and all of a sudden there's hundreds, if not thousands, if not thousands upon thousands, are going to this place in the desert, they're hearing this message from this strange man, but they're convicted by it. They're saying it is true. I need to repent of my sins, all those things I've done against God and offended God. I need to turn around. I need to confess them. Repent just means to turn around. I need to start living God's way. But I'm going to be baptised. And this is baptism before Jesus explains it. So baptism is like a sign of, I'm going to do this right, and it's a sign of new life still. I'm part of this new kingdom through John the Baptist baptism. But there's... Hundreds of people flocking out to the wilderness for that. This is a random event that's going on. People just don't do that. It's not a rock concert out in the desert. They're not having a big song fest out there. Just a straight... If you don't think it's a random sort of strange event through the eyes of Rome, Mark goes on to say just how strange this event is. He's not a rock star. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Not a nice coat, as in not a nice uh, leather coat, a hide. No, this coat's made out of hair. At least he's got a belt. There's some sort of fashion sense about him. He's got a belt. But his diet's not much better. He eats locusts and wild honey. They're not going out to see John, I think is what Mark's saying. He's not the, wow, this guy's amazing because of his fashion sense or his cooking. But he's going out to hear the message. And John, this humble man, the one that was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier, is pointing not to him. See, it's not about him, the Son of God, but he's pointing to one, someone greater. He says, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. If you want a sign... How about all these thousands of people going off to the wilderness hearing a message like this? Oh, they must be hearing someone great. No, he's not great. In fact, he dresses like a lunatic. But his message is, hey, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of this guy. This guy that's coming. This guy, Jesus. If you want a sign, how's that compare with you yelling at frogs to be quiet? This is a big sign. What about uh, the declaration? See, emperors would declare, uh, an emperor, an existing emperor would declare the dead emperor, that he is king. Well, who's going to declare Jesus as king? See, while this is all going on, Jesus comes to John to be baptised. And you can imagine there, sitting on the riverbank, you're amongst the thousands and thousands of people, you're sitting on the riverbank, watching people line up, confessing their sins, repenting, be baptised. Maybe you're one of the crowd, or maybe you're just the one just checking out what is going on here. Then all of a sudden, you see this one guy, and he's a little bit different. John baptises him still, though. But when he comes out of the water, you know, there's crowds around everywhere. The heavens open up. The heavens open up and the Spirit comes down to him like a dove, it says. You want a sign? There's another sign. A dove coming down. About a voice from heaven. It's God himself. Saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If you want somebody to declare you the son of God, 
Do you want somebody to say it after you're dead? Or do you want God himself to say it? How does that compare with the Roman emperors? You can't outdo God to declare you as God. So if you're reading this in the first century, this raises the question, who are you going to worship? Augustus, the emperor, he's got the temple down the road, we celebrate his birthday every year, we drink to him, uh, you know, advance the kingdom of Rome, or somebody who has prophesied hundreds of years before, somebody with a sign that, to a guy that says, I can't even compare myself, the one coming is going to be so great. As you read Mark, if you sit down, take up Ben's challenge and read through Mark, you'll see Mark includes lots more healing miracles than most other Gospels. Because again, that's another sign. He includes interesting bits about the cross. Because that's another sign. That when Jesus goes to the cross, what happens? He says, the sky goes black. There's another sign. The temple curtain is torn. What's that about? Another sign. In fact, the tomb's empty after three days. What's going on there? In fact, people seeing him again afterwards. You want signs that he is the Son of God? You want signs that he truly is God and defeats death? There's lots of this stuff happening around the cross. In fact, there's so much going on that Mark says this is plausible. He even mentions the story of the Roman centurion. Roman centurion, no, they're not just ordinary soldiers. They're in charge of a hundred other men being a centurion. They vow... Uh, loyalty to the emperor if you're in that position so you can see he, he's caught up in the roman uh, worship the roman religion of emperor worship he'd have to to hold that position but yet when he's standing and sees the way jesus dies his words are surely this man is the son of god he's a first-hand testimony you want signs signs that even romans are believing he says it's all happening and the claim by the man Augustus to do this, I can stamp coins that I'm divine, I can build temples that I'm divine. But God says to Jesus, this is the divine one. This is the divine. See, what Mark's talking about is not just another religion for Rome, or not just another philosophy, another way of life. No, if you truly believe he is the son of God, actually this is going to turn your world upside down. It's going to cause you all sorts of trouble in Rome. In fact, you could die for it. But what he's saying, it's actually more plausible that Jesus is son of God than any of the emperors or any of the things you worship in the first century Rome. See, people had to put their life on the line because Nero was there and many hundreds of Christians died at the hands of Nero because they did believe. They were convinced 100%, even enough to die. It's interesting that people don't just want evidence. Even today, you can give people a lot of evidence, but it's the so what factor, right? Sure, if Jesus is who he says he is or who Mark says he is, it's the so what. what do, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? And even for Rome, the way they followed their emperors, is, it's very political. They're promising victory. They're promising prosperity. They're promising peace. They're promising grandeur. You'll be somebody as far as the Roman Empire. There was excitement about where the Roman Empire was going. But it's interesting... For Jesus too, that Jesus came to restore the world as well in a different way. Excuse me. So for Jesus, uh, 
Mark's actually alluding to something that he does compare to the emperors. The emperors of the day were often referred to as saviours, but Jesus is a saviour as well. That he's offering another kingdom. We go back to Isaiah chapter 40, where Mark was quoting from. If you read the whole thing, it's all about how one's going to prepare the way, but it's preparing a way for the one who's going to restore the kingdom, the one who's going to bring peace to the world, the one that's going to allow you to live with God the Father in peace and harmony, unified. He's promising this vision of a new kingdom as well. We only go a couple more verses we'll get into next week where Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God. Yeah, Jesus is kind of like the emperor. He's a saviour. But he's offering something different. This, this new kingdom, how different is it? Well, Mark tells us that how it might not live up to people's expectations. Because at once, the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. It's a bit random, isn't it? We want Jesus to bring in the kingdom. We want Jesus to bring in this peace, prosperity, this unity with God. Why isn't Jesus just going out where the people are? Why isn't he healing people? Why isn't he teaching them? Why isn't he blessing them? Why isn't he restoring the people? But yet, is Jesus the first introvert you've ever heard of? You know, I've had enough of the crowds as people saw me baptised and there's thousands of people around now. I'm off in the wilderness just to, to clear my head a little bit. Is this the king you want to follow? Or is he a disappointment? See, for the Roman emperors, they promised so much. They're going to deliver them from from Rome's enemies, which were the neighbouring nations. We're going to form armies, we're going to you know, smash the neighbouring enemies, uh, we're going to bring peace, peace to the nation, prosperity to the nation, we're going to be someone, you want to be a part of it? Yeah, I want to be a part of it. Peace and prosperity for me? Yeah. It's going to be great for me? Yeah. I want to be a part of that. But yet Jesus sees the enemy as someone very different. It's not the other nations. Enemies, not the poverty that they're hoping prosperity will save them from. But the enemy is in the wilderness. It's there 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. He's gone out to meet Satan. It's not a warfare that armies are going to use to expand the borders, but it's a spiritual warfare that Jesus come. He's seen our greatest need, the separation from God, our sin, uh, our separation from God this is destroying us and we'll pay for that. But yet he... He says, I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with your greatest need. I'm going to start this battle right now. Day one of my ministry, head on with with Satan, facing off with him. That's why he goes out into the desert, to deal with our sin. And the one who's tempting us, the one who's trying to draw us away from the Father. Actually, what Mark's doing here too is showing us a little bit what sort of king he is. So right from the start, right to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see how Jesus follows this through. Again, we see Jesus hanging on the cross. And if you think Jesus might have been kind of a failure, wandering off into the desert, not helping anybody at that point, you kind of think your leader's disappointed you again. This is your leader, the one that's going to bring into the kingdom. But again, he's gone off alone, hanging, he's dead. It's kind of a disappointment again. Until we see what Jesus accomplishes through the cross. Where he does claim victory. Where he does destroy Satan. Where he does take our sin and pin it to the cross. He does die for that for us. He does restore us into the kingdom because of that. He does give us forgiveness. And then we can be baptised into new life. And be a part of the kingdom. The kingdom eternal. 
Jesus is facing our greatest enemy by wandering off into the desert. How does this roll with you? Is this something to live for? That he truly is son of God. Historically, we've got all this evidence that's going on that, that he, there's something amazing about him. That he is the son of God. That he has made promises and he's fulfilling those promises in his lifetime. But still are you convinced enough to know that he is truly someone we need to follow, even give up our lives for? See, history shows the Roman Empire... Where is the Roman Empire now? It falls. It's failed. How many people are worshipping Augustus now? I don't know of any. I haven't seen any or heard of any. But Jesus still reigns. Jesus still reigns. We prayed earlier for people in parts of our, our world who are living this sort of stuff every day, that if they stand up and go, no, we're not going to celebrate emperors, we're not going to celebrate other gods, we believe Jesus is truly Lord, and if they stand up and say that, they will be persecuted for it, even killed. But yet throughout Africa, throughout China even, uh, throughout the Middle East, that's actually where the church is growing the quickest. Instead of Africa and China, they'll be the two biggest nations like the most populated of christians in about 15 years time the christianity is spreading so quickly there yet they're the most persecuted jesus is still alive roman empire has failed Two thousand years later jesus is still building his kingdom he's still at work in the lives of people he still rules but you need to know if you follow this jesus it is going to come at a cost it's not the peace and prosperity message of the roman empires the message we want to follow I like peace and prosperity in my life. He's saying, no, this is going to cost you if you follow this, this guy. But he will bring you into a new kingdom. He will give you life. And you can have such certainty, it is worth dying for. It is worth dying for. Now, if you've come here today and you're having trouble at work or having trouble with your friends, standing up for Jesus, have certainty Go through Mark's gospel. Know the evidence. Know the proof. Proof he is worth following for. Or if you're here and you're still wrestling with this, who is Jesus? I'm not sure if he's a story or you know, tradition or whatever. Know that, that you can have certainty. That you can commit your life to him. Find life through him. Have certainty of so much it might cost you your life in the process. Let me pray. Pray that God will certainly work in our hearts to reveal himself to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, the gospel. We thank you that we can look through history, find lots of archaeological evidence to know that, that this message is so controversial. Well, it's not the beginning of a fairy tale, but the beginning of the reign of Jesus Christ, that he is the, the Messiah, the King, that he is the one we can trust. That he was the one who loved us enough to give up his life for us because of his love. Lord, help us, help us to see you so convincingly that we just don't tack you onto our life, but see that you are the reason for life. That we are willing to give up our lives, to give up everything for you because you're truly Lord. Lord, we want to be a part of your kingdom, your kingdom eternal. And we trust in you for that because we know we can't do it ourselves. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.